Lumos. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Harry Podcast, the show where we analyze and discuss each chapter of the Harry Potter series from a literary perspective. I'm David. And I'm Madeline. And today's episode is called Harry Podcast and the Whomping Willow. Today we will be discussing the questionable decision-making of our characters and the significance of one very angry tree. The chapter begins when the Weasleys and Harry leave the burrow to go to King's Cross Station. Arthur has secretly enchanted the Ford Anglia to fit all eight of them plus their stuff, but Molly doesn't notice. On the way, stuck in traffic and worrying that they'll miss the train, Arthur mentions that there's an invisibility booster in the car that they could use to escape muggle attention while flying. They arrive at the station very near to 11 o'clock, and all rush to get to platform 9 and 3 quarters and board the train before it leaves. Harry and Ron are left to go through the barrier last, but it inexplicably seals itself, preventing them from getting onto the train. Panicking, they quickly decide to fly the Ford Anglia to Hogwarts by following the train's path. The faulty invisibility booster mostly keeps them hidden, although for a couple moments they are seen. The car begins to die when they are near Hogwarts, and they crash land in a willow tree, which begins beating them and the car up. They manage to escape, though Ron's wand is broken and the car ejects them and then runs off to the Forbidden Forest. Sneaking up to the castle, they are caught by Snape, who brings them to his office and angrily accuses them of breaking several secrecy laws and school rules, and informs them that they cause damage to the Whomping Willow. He threatens them with expulsion, but does not have the power, instead fetching Professor McGonagall, who is their head of house, and can expel them. After hearing Harry and Ron's explanations, she berates them before giving them both detention, but not expelling them. They are sent to their common room, where a raucous Gryffindor crowd cheers on their legendary arrival, and Hermione looks frustrated with them. So I think the theme of this chapter is basically everyone is making very questionable decisions. Absolutely. Everyone from Harry and Ron to Mr. and Mrs. Weasley to Dobby to even Hogwarts professors are just like really not making very good decisions. It's very unclear. So Harry and Ron, we can start off by saying, first of all, they clearly make some poor decisions and don't put any level of thought into them. So when they figure out that they can't get through the barrier, which, to be fair, is confusing, Mm -hmm. they, you know, they don't know what to do, but they immediately go to, let's take the flying car that is Arthur's. Let's steal my parents' car and fly it to Hogwarts. And follow the train. They, in the moment, act like there's nothing else we can do. This is the only way we can figure out what's going on and and get to Hogwarts. Frankly, Ron is super cavalier about that. He's... Harry's like, won't we get in trouble? Like, he knows that they'd be breaking wizarding law by stealing the car and flying it to Hogwarts and potentially flouting the statute of secrecy in doing so. But he's like, well, but wizards in dangerous situations where they, like, have to use magic can use magic Mm -hmm. and it's defensible. Um, But clearly didn't put a lot of thought into, like, what are the consequences of this going to be? And also, like, do we have other options? Yeah, not to mention, yeah, all the other options that they could do. Such as McGonagall asked them later on in the chapter, why didn't you use Hedwig to contact anyone? She's like, I believe you have an owl to Harry. Right. Like you could, that's how they communicate. They could have sent an owl to Hogwarts saying, hey, we couldn't get on the train. And speaking of that interaction, Harry is so surprised by that. He goes, I, I didn't think. And McGonagall cuts him off and she goes, that is obvious. Yeah. 
And Dumbledore is disappointed, you know, at the end of the chapter when he's he's like, I'm going to write to your family. He's like, this is not cool of you to do this. Yeah, Dumbledore is just so disappointed in them. And Harry feels like that's even worse than if he had shouted at them. And I kind of agree. Mm-hmm. Dumbledore is just like a disappointed father. But, you know, frankly, that punishment is weighted far more in favor of Harry than it is for Ron because Harry's family isn't going to care when right. they get a letter from Hogwarts. Ron's family is. And Definitely as we're going to see maybe next chapter, I forget what chapter it is, but when Ron gets the howler, but mm-hmm. they're really, really upset. Yeah. And it's crazy because reading now as an adult, we are kind of taking Snape's side, or at least I'm taking, yeah. I'm taking Snape's side. Oh, I totally agree. I mean, Snape is, you know, clearly like, loving this and wants them to be expelled but i mean snape is like i mean what the heck you can't do this yeah totally and like everything he says i remember reading it when i was a kid and it seemed like he was just like really laying it on thick and trumping up really like the allegations against them and just being like you guys were being so stupid like how could you make decisions like this and at the time you know taking harry and ron's side when i was younger I was like, well, they did what they had to do. You know, they couldn't have got to Hogwarts any other way. You know, this was justified. Snape just doesn't understand. And now as an adult reading it, I'm like, yeah, Snape was totally right. These these kids were so stupid. They made such bad decisions. They didn't use any of the resources they had available to them at the time. And we're just really screwed up at every point in time. Yeah, and they're 12 and it's like, okay, you're going to have terrible decision making. Um, but... I just don't feel like it's realistic. I think that they would have tried to contact someone or waited for their parents to come back or, you yeah. know, waited for the Weasleys. It seems like that was quite impulsive of them. Yeah. And speaking of the Weasleys' parents, um, they make some pretty bad decisions in this chapter, too. Oh, they yeah. basically make Harry and Ron go last to go on the platform, and that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, for no reason. Like, I mean, why wouldn't they, as the parents, go last? Because they're, you know, not the ones that need to get on the train. Like, I understand them wanting to be with Ginny and the younger kids and mm-hmm. help her on, but it seems weird to have, you know, specifically... Harry and Ron go last. Like, why not have Fred and George even? It just, it, their order of things doesn't make sense. So maybe yeah. they're just really stressed and they're just like pointing to people and trying to get things done quickly. Um, but you wouldn't leave two kids to go last if you were worried about getting on time. It seems like a minor thing. But again, these are 12 year olds and Arthur and Molly are basically just like, okay, so there's this portal that we have to go through and you guys just go last and whatever. No concern for like, you know, how how are they going to make sure that they get through with all their stuff if there's a problem? Clearly, they didn't anticipate problems, is what I'm saying. But, like, you know, this this could have gone very badly, and it did go badly. Right, it does. And so there's all these uh, layers of bad decisions coming together, because basically... Yeah, in this one moment. You know, Harry and Ron and Arthur and Molly, but also um, Dobby. So we know what's yeah. actually happening with the barrier is that Dobby has enchanted whatever the barrier to lock at question mark i mean at this certain time like what would have happened if harry and ron hadn't been the last people to go right yeah i mean his his attempt here basically relies upon luck and Mm -hmm. circumstance really heavily like as you said like what if harry and ron hadn't been the last to go what if it had been molly and Ginny or fred and george or something um, what if there had been other families there who were also late getting onto the train uh, and got there at the last minute? 
you know, there's just so much that could have gone wrong for Dobby's plan here. Like if it, if it's just him trying to keep Harry from getting onto the train, like so much has to go right for him to be able to actually stop Harry from being able to get on. And even then, like, again, what if there were other families there? What if they weren't last? Then when his attempt succeeds and he, and Harry doesn't get on, there's like 10 other people around to just be like, okay, well, you know, obviously something's wrong with the barrier. We'll contact the train and make sure that they don't leave yet. Or we'll send Hedwig to Professor Dumbledore and, and he'll arrange a port key. Or yeah, I mean, like why? It's clearly a very desperate move by Dobby because if he had thought about it more, or maybe he did think about it more, and he just wanted to try anyway. But you know, Harry's not going to just be like, "Well, can't go to Hogwarts this right. year." He's going to figure out a way, even if he figures out a pretty stupid way at the time. He's going to figure it out. Yeah, and and Dobby would know that from just their one long conversation that Harry would do anything to go to Hogwarts again, and. You know, even if it means accepting tons and tons of punishment, um, he's always going to be trying to get to Hogwarts. And so, you know, this this attempt, well, sort of makes sense in some ways. It doesn't in others because obviously Harry isn't going to be deterred by just not being able to get onto the train. There are other ways to get to Hogwarts. He takes a very stupid route, but he ends up still getting there. So I guess it wasn't really that stupid. Yeah. And even Dobby's, I mean, we don't really know exactly what he did with the barrier, but it almost makes me wonder if he somehow blocked it specifically for Harry because, you know, why, like, of course, like, how could he know the exact time to block right, unless it? he was there monitoring it at the time. Which he like, may have invisible. been. Actually, that's a great idea. Could have been. That's why I always pictured it as, like, Dobby's hiding on the other side of the platform. Oh, yeah, that makes, like, way more just, sense. like, sort of watching somehow. Yeah. But, again, it relies really heavily upon Harry being, like, the last one right. to go through. So it's pretty silly. But going back to like the when they get to Hogwarts and, and all that stuff is going on and they're mm-hmm. being punished, um, I think there were a couple other bad decisions made there too. First by like Professor McGonagall and Dumbledore and then by like all of Gryffindor House. And I'll explain what I mean. I think Dumbledore and McGonagall don't punish them enough. Mm-hmm. Or it, like I alluded to the fact that Ron's being punished more than Harry because his family is going to care a lot more about getting this letter from Dumbledore. I think they should have um, understood that and accommodated for that and punished Harry additionally, in addition to like having the letter sent home, like do something else bad to Harry. Also, after this scene happens, the pair of boys seem to think that they've gotten off pretty much scot-free. They were they went into this meeting expecting expulsion, right. and they came out of it with detention and a letter home. So they feel relieved instead of feeling like, oh, you know, we really screwed up here. They're thinking. Uh, we basically got away with this. And then when they get into the common room, everyone's like, woohoo, except yeah. for Hermione because she's actually smart. And that's what I mean about Gryffindor House making bad decisions. Everyone celebrates them. And yeah. now they're not going to feel like this was a bad thing they did. They're going to feel like this got us a lot of street cred. And this is just a- another thing that we've talked about before of especially Harry, but the whole Harry and Ron and you know Gryffindors and the trio in general just getting a lot of praise for breaking the rules because... Mm-hmm you know, often they are doing something heroic at the same time. But this time they weren't even doing anything heroic. They were just being stupid and dangerous. Like, really, there was nothing, like, except for the fact that it was, you know, technically brave to fly the 
car. It wasn't and it was cool saving and it was like, anyone. And it was like epic. You know, if you're a high school kid, this is like, you know, two kids like joyriding their way to Hogwarts. That's like a fun story. And I'm sure that everyone really liked it for the story. Yeah, but, but it's not that- like the Sorcerer's Stone, like Harry saved everyone. It's like, and <laughs> right. he broke the rules, but There's whatever. There's no heroism here. Yeah. So it's not, it's not just like a Gryffindor trait here that is being egged on. It's like specifically rule breaking for the sake of it right is being is being praised and yeah that really is gonna screw with them a little bit because they keep getting praised for breaking the rules and they're gonna keep breaking the rules over and over yeah and one thing i just wanted to go back to quickly about um snape so we are saying that we're kind of taking snape's side here um, and in this whole interrogation with Snape and McGonagall and Dumbledore, there is one interesting line where Harry says that he feels like Snape is reading his mind. Right. I think there may have been an allusion to that in Philosopher's Stone as well. I think so too, yeah. But this, of course, is the first time that it comes up in Chamber of Secrets. And I think that's significant because it means that Rowling is still reminding us of this feeling of having your mind read by Snape that will keep coming up every, pretty much every single book. Until we finally learn the truth in Order of the Phoenix that, in fact, that is a facsimile of what he is doing. Um, and so she keeps planting this foreshadowing in the heads of the readers, being like, hey, it kind of seems like mind reading what he's doing. Snape is a legilimens, which means he can perform legilimency, which is looking into other people's minds and thoughts. I want to circle back to something that sort of happens at the beginning of the chapter, but it's barely mentioned. But I think it's really important, which is that when they're leaving the borough, Ginny makes them turn the car around and mm-hmm. head back to the borough because she's forgotten her diary. And we know that this is Tom Riddle's diary, which she has just been slipped into her cauldron in the previous episode by Lucius and Flourish and Blots. So this is a very quick mention that I forgot existed at all, but we know now that she is already using the diary in whatever form. We're not exactly sure, but she has begun, um, you know, writing in it. Yeah, and we can probably assume, based on her emotional reaction to having left it behind, that it's already become very important to her. She and might it has even a already, hold, yeah. She might already be emotionally dependent on it, mm-hmm. um, which, of course, is how it gets its power. Mm-hmm. So I think this is important for a couple of reasons. First off, it's a very early foreshadowing of, like, this is the pivotal item, object of the book, and, and it's already developed a hold upon this character. The other thing is that what we talked about last chapter was that it was Ginny's choice to use it. Mm-hmm. Um, no one forced her to do it. It was just available to her. And then she made the choice to use it. Um, and we can see here that she has already made that choice. She's made that choice. And I think we can wonder in a lot of ways, like what magical power the Horcruxes may have over her already. Because mm-hmm. I think while she makes the choice to like look at it and probably open it, and, you know, maybe realize, like, oh, this is a diary, you know, she knows that she didn't buy this diary. She knows that it came from somewhere, and it's sort of, she's not supposed to have it. Mm -hmm. And so um, she knows to keep it a secret, and um, the power of this Horcrux may, you know, almost be starting to curse her in a way. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of pull in something secret and forbidden for an 11 year old like that so that might be part of it but i think also you might be onto something 
Horcruxes too tend to like draw people in. Mm-hmm. And I mean, so, if we think about the locket later yeah, on, yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking of. Yeah, it's like it draws you in, and then it makes you rely on it. And so, you know, just by having it be in close proximity to her could have influenced her decision making up to this point already. So, one other thing that occurs and is kind of an interesting um, bit of foreshadowing as well is that while the Whomping Willow is Whomping them, um, Ron's wand breaks and Ron, you know, exclaims that his wand has broken, um, basically shattered. Um, so it is a source of comic relief throughout the book, um, where Ron is trying to do spells in class or just around and, you know, things go wrong and he can't really do it. And it's kind of funny. Most famously in the slugs incident where he tries to curse Malfoy, but curses himself by accident instead. So it's pretty much like comedy that happens, but um, it's similar to the idea of a Chekhov's gun, which is that in Chekhov's plays, um, if there's a gun hanging on the wall, it's going to go off by the end of the play. That's kind of uh, the way that people use that phrase. And so in the way that this broken wand, you know, in the first, one of the first chapters um, goes off at the end is when... um, Lockhart in the Chamber of Secrets is trying to uh, use Ron's wand to obviate Harry and Ron's memories of what he's just told them and what's happened. Um, And the wand, because it's messed up and broken, backfires and ends up obliviating Lockhart's memory himself. Um, So that's also, in a way, you know, comic relief at the end. And it really saves harry and ron and you know a lot of things by that happening right and i do want to touch on how like this was a comedic moment i think as you said pretty clearly when gilderoy loses all of his memory it's supposed to be funny and the reader is supposed to be like oh he got his just desserts because like he always obliviated everybody else and like stole credit for what they did but then he ends up obliviated and even dumbledore says like impaled upon your own sword gilderoy mm-hmm. um so it's like there's an ir- irony to that and it's really, it is really funny, but then it comes back around in Order of the Phoenix and we see how sad his life is after that point. In St. Mungo's, right? Yeah, yeah, when he's in the insane asylum, basically, because he can't remember anything about himself. Um, it just, it's really sad and kind of makes you like, think again about like how funny that was when you first read about it. It like, you know, comes back around and then it's really not so funny anymore. Yeah. So we'll talk way more about this later in the book and we're not even there yet, but I do think it's a good sort of reminder to us to think about Lockhart in a little bit more sensitive light. You know, as we go throughout this book, this is his main book and, you know, we love to hate him and, you know, he has a lot of flaws, but Mm -hmm. just thinking about him as a person and then what he ends up becoming. And a couple of last things that we get foreshadowed in this chapter. Obviously, we are introduced to the Whomping Willow, and that plays a much larger role in Prisoner of Azkaban as the source of the tunnel that leads to the Shrieking Shack, where the final confrontations occur. Um, But Snape, in particular, seems really upset that they damaged it, which, you know, I was having trouble thinking about why that would be. And does that relate to the origins of the Whomping Willow in any way, or the incident where... He was in the tunnel and he saw Lupin and then James rescued him. Like, does that relate to it in any way? Is he like having flashbacks to James and now Harry's here and Harry's damaged it? And 
Yeah, what's his connection? So let's back up a little bit and explain. So the creation for the Whomping Willow uh, was... Remus Lupin attending Hogwarts. Yes. So Remus Lupin being a werewolf, attending Hogwarts, needing this um, place, the Shrieking Shack, to go and transform. And mm-hmm. the Whomping Willow is there to distract and, you know, protect this place. And, and keep to prevent anybody else from, from getting, getting in. in yeah. To protect them and to protect Remus. Um, so that's, you know, why it was there. And so... There's just a lot of sort of foreshadowing um, around uh, what happens later and also Harry's connection with Lupin and all of this stuff. But especially thinking about Snape, like he's very much saying you damaged a, you know, prized magical object, basically, this Whomping Willow. And so I wonder, I think it's interesting to think about what, what connection Snape has to it, especially because... Um, we realize that Snape actually dies in the Shrieking Shack, which right. is the other end of the passage that it guards. Yeah, and it's kind of spooky when you think about how many connections Snape ends up having to that tree and right. the passage that it guards. There's a lot, uh, yeah, Snape's, um, you know, most pivotal moments are kind of in that in that area and with the tree, so yeah. it's oh. almost... Wow, I just thought of something. So James saved his life, like in that passage, James mm-hmm. Potter saved his life, probably like close to the end of the passage because he could see Lupin from where he was. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the seventh book, Harry is in that passage, like pretty close to the end of the passage that he can observe Snape and Voldemort. Mm-hmm. And then, but Harry doesn't save him. He just dies. Mm-hmm. I wonder if there was supposed to be like a parallel there in some way interesting yeah there's a lot there's a lot to think about with snape in this i wonder if snape like had flashbacks as he was dying to like when james saved him because like harry looks just like him you know yeah so i wonder if rowling was thinking about all this you know when she just wrote snape's lines you know talking to harry and ron here or if there's some you know strange psychological or magical connection uh, that snape is feeling at this moment to the Whomping Willow and knowing the significance that it's had on his past and maybe will have on its future. Yeah, well, it's interesting. Definitely a lot more than I would have thought when I read this the first time. Thank you all for listening to Harry Podcast and The Whomping Willow. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion of this chapter. If you have thoughts or questions about anything we've discussed today, especially Harry and Ron's decision-making or Snape's connections to The Whomping Willow, please email us at contact at theharrypodcast.com. And we may even share some of your insights on a later podcast. You can find out more about the show and listen to any of our episodes at www.theharrypodcast.com or on Apple Podcasts. Stay tuned for next time when we unlock the heart of Chapter 6, Gilderoy Lockhart. I'm Madeline. And I'm David, and we'll see you next time on The Harry Podcast. Knox.